Welcome to FRT, the IAF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, and today we're in Washington, but off-site, a couple of blocks walk from IAF headquarters, we're visiting the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation and their president, Rob Atkinson. As well as founding and leading the ITIF, Rob previously led programs in multiple US administrations on IT, innovation and infrastructure. He's also a prolific author. I found not only his most recent works on Amazon, but also his research on innovation economics going back to 2005. Rob, thank you for joining us and welcome to FRT. Thank you for having me. Rob, I want to pick up on some of the themes that you highlighted at the APEC uh, Business Advisory Council meetings in Atlanta two months ago. And back on FRT episode 27, I had JC Perenas from Zuho and Bob Trojan of Token Insights join me in debriefing those meetings. And, and all three of us really gravitated to your remarks at that time, particularly about tech clash and also data policies. But before we do that, could I firstly get you to tell us a little little bit about the ITIF and the foundation's particular areas of current focus? Sure. ITIF, Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, we're a think tank, like other think tanks in DC. Uh, we've been around since 2006. A little bit unique uh, in the sense of we're not a broad-based think tank. We really focus uh, somewhat narrowly on innovation and technology policy questions. So that might be anything from 5G to AI, uh, clean energy, um, really a wide array of issues, anything really that affects innovation or how governments can get in the way of harming it or help support it. And that also includes both here in the United States and really all around the world, uh, developing and developed nations. So we've been uh, recently ranked by University of Pennsylvania for the second year in a row as the top science and tech think tank in the world. So we're very proud of that. Continue to do our work. Very good. Very good. When you spoke at the APEC Enabling a Digital Society event, one of the key areas you covered was the notion of tech clash, and you made a very striking point that I've cited a few times since then, namely that civil society would likely have blocked the development of the internet if it had fully understood the, the technology, the development at the time. Uh, and indeed, especially in the last 12 months, we've seen a growing reaction against the social media companies in particular and added emphasis on privacy. How do you see this emerging public backlash? Is it a focused and acute reaction, particularly around the, the social networking companies? Or is it part of a broader, I think you used the phrase quasi-Luddite when you spoke in Atlanta, is it part of that sort of broader reaction perhaps against technology and, and digitization writ large? It's both. Um, there are certainly some of the things that some of the social networking companies have done have created some backlash. Part of it is also just they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. You know, they're really sort of between a rock and a hard place if, if they take down content that Somebody thinks, oh, you, why are you censoring? Now, they get criticized for that. If they go err on the side of not doing that, they get criticized. So it's a, it's a situation that's fraught with conflict and opposition. But more broadly than that, we're seeing a broad array of groups now come out, even, frankly, elites. You know, when you have people like Elon Musk uh, equate artificial intelligence, simply a software set of algorithms, ones and zeros, with the devil. <laughs> You know, that's that's pretty bad. Uh, so, you know, when, when you have people like Bill Gates say, you know, we have to tax robots because we're going to run out of jobs. Uh, we're in the middle of a tech panic. And part of the reason it's happening, I, I blame it all on the cell phone. Uh, everybody extrapolates. They think they're an expert on technology because they own a cell phone. And yes, they say, oh, yeah. my God, these cell phones are so dramatic and rapid. Well, first of all, they're not. Uh, cell phones really haven't improved very much since the iPhone 4. I mean, they've improved, but. Incrementally. Incrementally. Mm. So that's what, eight, nine, eight, nine years almost. 
Um, but by and large, technology is not advancing all that rapidly. Uh, you know, wh wh where is IoT, ubiquitous Internet of Things? Everybody talked about that 10 years ago. Where mm. is it? You know, where is AI? You know, it, it's, it's, you know, it's getting there. But I think people over are over, you know, connected vehicles. I mean, uh, sort of autonomous vehicles are a long, long way off. But in people's minds, we've been taught and we've been told every day, this is happening, it's going to happen tomorrow, and it's going to be the greatest thing. I mean, I blame <laughs> anybody to blame. I, I think the World Economic Forum has done a disservice um, by, by talking about the fourth industrial revolution being mm -hmm. greater than the first industrial revolution. The first one being obviously the British uh, this, yeah. early 1800s. No, no, it's not going to be that. It, it'll be yeah, kind of like the internet era, post-war era. It'll be nice, it'll be big. It's not like... Nothing that humans haven't dealt with before and successfully managed. And then just one last quick thing. I think I think we've all become blasé. Um, yeah, geez, you know, we use our phones to get around. We don't have to have paper maps anymore. We don't have to look for pay phones. We don't have to worry about, you know, when we take pictures on our phone, oh, I'm running out of film. Not correct. <laughs> we take it, you know, the, the, the fact that you can go online, I can, we were talking about basketball, I, I can watch the game. Uh, we just take that for granted. Yeah, totally. totally. But ten years yeah. ago, there was a lot of excitement around that. And I think that's now people take it for granted, and they're moved into being, being critical mode rather than wow mode. And perhaps you know, when you relate that that context of a, a slower change than perhaps the perception has been, perhaps that people were wowed ten years ago, and they've just assumed that the technology has continued to progress at the rate that they were led to believe it would, irrespective yeah. of of the actual trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. And also, what we part of, I agree with that also. Um, you know, when you look at the media, you, you'll see these articles about somebody doing something in a lab and doing this thing. Everybody, oh my, like, like you know, 5G. There's no 5G deployment. 5G is going to take a while for it to work its way through. And, yes. But everybody's like, you know, connected vehicles because, I mean, autonomous because, you know, there was a test of some car somewhere. That's very different than most cars being able to drive uh, in a snowstorm without a driver. And so we hear these things. We just... And, and a lot of people just assume they're going to be here a couple of years from now, if not now. A great example I heard um, Kathy Besson at Bank of America describe recently, when you mentioned about autonomous vehicles in, in snowy environments, uh, she described how that she'd grown up, uh, I think it was in Michigan, and one of the things she'd been taught was if you see a deer on the road, you hit it. You know, you don't try and swerve around it. Yeah. And you know, I think she'd asked the question of, you know, so when the people that are, are programming autonomous vehicles are they going to be diverse? Are they, is this going to be a representative group, including the people that have grown up in Michigan, perhaps, with that uh, expectation, or those of us in Australia that might have the same scenario with a kangaroo? Yeah, really, sure. uh, or, as, as she was concerned, the, is it all going to be people who have grown up in big city urban environments who have a different context, perhaps, of what they expect an autonomous yeah. vehicle to do? Right, right. And that just goes to the point also about how complicated these things are, how complex they are. And they're not simple things. And because they're so complex, they take longer than people think, and they're harder to do, and they take more money. Things are always slower. You know, well, we're going to get this thing out in 18 months. Well, no, it takes 36 months. Yes. Yeah. Two other things you mentioned in Atlanta that we've focused on a lot at the IF about uh, are data localization and GDPR. Uh, and firstly, on data localization, you, you noted, I think quite rightly, about how this can be an enormous impediment to cloud adoption, uh, especially in small countries. And I thought it was a really interesting point you made that while some countries believe that they can only ensure data privacy from within their borders, the reality is that rules governing the data travel with that data across borders. You mentioned a really interesting Canadian court case on a scenario where data was taken across the border into the US, 
but was ruled as, as still subject to Canadian data privacy law. Can you elaborate a little on that case and perhaps why policymakers should take greater comfort on this point? Yeah, so I apologize. I wrote about that a couple of years ago. I don't remember the name of the company, but it had something to do with um, it was an American firm with a, with, with a branch in Canada, mm-hmm. and uh, I believe it was some related to healthcare data. And they uh, were aggregating all the data, uh, North American data, in the U.S., and they were abiding by U.S. law, privacy law, so they weren't breaking that law. Uh, but Canadian privacy law was different. Now, I'm assuming this was inadvertent on their part. Really, frankly, doesn't matter whether it was inadvertent or not. Fact is, they were breaking Canadian law. Canadian law said you had to deal with Canadian person law this way. They were dealing with it the American way. What a lot of policymakers believe is if they mandate that data never leave the country, that the law will be obeyed in their country. In fact, what happened there was the Canadian authorities, the privacy authorities, took the American company to court in Canada because they had legal nexus yes. plant there. They could sue them, uh, do whatever they wanted, really, uh, under, under law, and they won. Company violated the Canadian law. It didn't matter if they moved the data to Timbuktu or Antarctica or out in space. And that is true in every country. Uh, and so the notion that you have to keep the data in your country because you don't want anyone else to violate your privacy laws is really just simply not true. For the majority of firms, where if you're a multinational bank and you're in Brazil, you're going to be subject to Brazilian law. If you're a car company in, uh, in Argentina or Korea, you're going to be subject to that. So, yes. I think it just really boils down to a misunderstanding of how the technology works. And, and, and I mean, Europeans, I think, have made that mistake. They, they, that's partly why, partly why there's so much uproar about uh, what's called privacy shield around Americans' taking data. Mm. Um, you know, I met with one of the top privacy people in Europe. I explained my thoughts to him. He said, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, the, the, the data responsibilities flow with so I want to move on to GDPR itself in a moment, but before I do, I want to link a little bit of what you were just describing to perhaps the, the European and US differences, the fundamentally different approaches in legislation thus far, at least. And one comment I've heard a little bit in, in different parts of the world is perhaps a suspicion that others have towards the US, that because the US doesn't have a GDPR-like uh, yet, at least other than California, I guess, doesn't yet have a, a data privacy and, and protection regime that there is this distrust that other countries may have and we don't want to enter into an open data across borders agreement with the US because we fundamentally in some way don't trust the US regime and US companies that are subject to that. But I think your point in that that illustration you give from that Canadian case is those countries should actually have more confidence in their own legal system and their own enforcement uh, where it might be an American player, an American cloud provider or whoever operating within their borders. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and and I think why why um, why this matters. I mean, by the way, just to point out, a, I think a slight anomaly in the European framework, which I think they apply very unevenly. Uh, my understanding is that you can move European person data to China. Right. Hmm. So really, let's get real. Which country has the better regime? And yeah. uh, I, I don't think it's China. Yeah. Um, but there's another reason this is important. We wrote a report recently called the cross, I think it was called Cross-Border Data Flows in Traditional Industries. And we looked at how companies around the world in mining and retail and banking and manufacturing, uh, not American companies, by the way, we have foreign companies, are, are really using data, uh, but from all around the world and aggregating it for analytics. Uh, you think about, we talked about autonomous deals, but increasingly cars are connected and every car company is gonna wanna know what the performance of their car all mm. around the world. And some of that could have 
what's called PII, personally identifiable information attachment. And if you basically block that and you say, we're going to have data silos in 150 different countries, the ability to do analytics and really learn um, is going to be quite restricted. So that's why it's important to get this framework right. We're, 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 we're somewhat fans of uh, Prime Minister Abe's, uh, mm -hmm. he has this point of, I think, a nice term, uh, free flow of data with trust. Yeah. Uh, I think, right, you want free flow of data, but you want trust. How do you make sure that you're not going to have abuse? And, that was part of his Bites Without Borders speech in January, yeah. if I recall. Yeah. 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 So uh, the devil's in the details, obviously, but uh, the concept, we believe, is the right concept. Yeah, and, and hopefully he'll continue to take that through to the Osaka G20 Summit um, in just over a month's time. So you've alluded to the other point I wanted to come to, um, and I was going to do so specifically with a GDPR lens, although I think you probably also pointed that it can be wider than this. But when you referred uh, in Atlanta about GDPR, you, you made the point of how that can hinder the development of artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies. Uh, and in the IEF's research, we found very similar observations. Uh, we did a study just over a year ago where we interviewed 58 banks and two mortgage insurers on their adoption of machine learning and credit risk. And amongst the barriers or challenges or concerns that people identified was very much this notion that under GDPR, we're required, that the especially problematic part where you're required to stipulate up front to the consumer what you're going to use their data for. And the nature of some of the great work in machine learning is, is quite often you don't know that at the time that you're, you're taking the data. Um, and so uh, in terms of being able to un uncover those insights when you don't yet know what you're looking for. What do you think the, the future-looking policy outlook is in this space? You know, are we likely to see an expansion of GDPR-like data protection regimes that adds and compound this problem in different jurisdictions? Uh, and will this just further complicate and constrain the development of, of such technologies? Yeah, so we've written a longer report a couple of years ago about GDPR and AI. We have a new one coming out in two weeks that goes into a little more narrow but deeper uh, on particular issues. And one of them you, you alluded to uh, about purpose use. Uh, you don't know what it's going to be used for. Another big one, by the way, in, in the financial industry is uh, making decisions, as they say, credit decision uh, using AI. Um, if you design your algorithm right, which you know sometimes mm -hmm. you might not, uh, it, it is less biased. Yes. Yeah, it, yeah. It, they don't care what, the algorithm doesn't care about race, it cares can you pay, they don't care about gender. Um, but in the EU, you have you have to explain how you made that decision, and you have to give the, the person the right to have a manual decision being made. And if they have a mistake, the potential fines are very, very high. So there really is a lot of sort of barriers and burdens put into place of, say, financial services, wanting to use AI to improve quality uh, cost of service delivery. Um, so what is the prospect? I really, I really wish that GDPR had been started two years later. Yes. Because it was a little bit like our Telecom Act of 96 that didn't use, I think it mentioned the internet once, word. It's like, it would have been two years later and they would have gotten it right. Uh, if GDPR had been two years later, the whole AI machine learning conversation would have been much more central. And I think they would have understood some of the problems in that. You know, Europe's pretty committed to GDPR. They feel quite proud of it and you don't want to you know, adjust it. But we've advocated strongly that you know, you can make some adjustments and no legislation is perfect and no legislators all prescient. So you know, everything needs to have us, you know, come back, review it, refresh it. I don't know whether that'll happen or not. It depends partly on the outcome of the elections I guess, mm. next month or so. And when you look at other countries, though, um, what I worry about is, is sort of European contagion. Um, Europeans are very good at sort of selling their view to a lot of third countries, uh, developing mm -hmm. countries in particular. 
And, you know, some of them, just to be clear, you know, they don't have big staffs. They don't really have a lot of capability, as many capabilities to understand these. So they look at Europe and say, well, the Europeans said this, we should just do it. And they don't, may not understand the negative impacts it could have on their own economies. Particularly, you know, there are going to be a lot of AI applications that are unique to particular types of countries and types of things, you know, yes. types of agriculture or finance or other things like that. In the U.S., um, I fundamentally don't believe we will have, I, well, I know we're not going to have GDPR in the U.S. Uh, we're just not going to do that. Um, partly because the Republicans control the Senate, and um, even if it changes in 2020, Democrats are not going to get 60 votes. So Republicans tend to be more cautious about over-regulating in this space. Mm -hmm. Having said that, you mentioned California. There's an enormous push now to have some national framework of privacy, just so that companies don't have to deal with 50 different regimes. Yes, yeah. so which have, is a risk. It's yeah. a risk. It's yeah. huge risk, and then particularly for startups, uh, you just don't have the time and the money to go through and hassle with 50 different things. Um, so there will be, we will have a stronger privacy regime than we have now. I, I am cautiously optimistic that it won't be seriously problematic for AI. Well, it's a cautiously optimistic note to, to finish on then, perhaps. Um, Rob, thanks for, thank you very much for joining us and for your, your insights. If I can briefly highlight a couple of your points, uh, the way you've described the tech lash as being in some ways both acute and broad, uh, and I like the notion that you gave that we're uh, in the middle of a tech panic, uh, but also the point you make about the perhaps blasé notion, and we do need to remind ourselves uh, the post-payphone post-physical map world, um, the ease with which we have in watching the NBA finals, as you described. Um, it's a different world that we we take for granted. i just give you one quick example. Yeah. I was on vacation last summer with my family. We were in a cabin in the woods in Colorado. My daughter's two best friends uh, at, her, at our local school in Maryland, they both moved to their home countries. One was Japanese, one was Indonesian. And my daughter was using video Skype or video something or the, talking to both of them at once. They're still her best friends after four years of absence using satellite. Yeah. And I looked at that and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. How could you not be amazed that my daughter's talking in real time to her best friend in Tokyo and her best friend in Jakarta? It's a wonderful world. I remind myself that, uh, and just walking here to your offices, that I realized we're across the road from the YHA hostel where I stayed when I first visited Washington 20 years ago. And I was writing postcards to, yeah. to my parents in yeah. those days. Yeah. Uh, Whereas it's very much the you're using those mediums you mentioned yeah. as the way to, to keep in touch with family yep. now. A yep. um, couple of other points you mentioned: uh, the the recent ITIF report on cross-border data flows in traditional industries, uh, but also I'm glad you highlight the the new report you have coming out uh, in a couple of weeks on GDPR. Um, and if I can take the cue you gave about uh, algorithms perhaps being less biased to also plug an upcoming IIF report, uh, my colleague Natalia Bailey will very shortly uh, uh, publish our report on model bias and, uh, and ethical use in machine learning. And to the point that, uh, that you made, Rob, about, uh, about the algorithm and perhaps being less biased, one anecdote we've heard from a couple of, of Canadian banks in particular is how it's the traditional models that break down where they can't handle what seem to be omissions in the data. And so they tend to be punishing, for instance, against women who have had maternity leave and there's zero periods uh, through the course of their, their income history, whereas the machine learning model has been much more effective at being able to, to look beyond that mm -hmm. and, uh, and account for that. Uh, I agree with your sense that GDPR was uh, unfortunately developed probably two years too early. Uh, it's one of those challenges with such an enormous piece of legislation that it's technologically obsolete or superseded by the time that it's actually passed. Um, 
And uh, I thought also an interesting point also you made about others potentially copying Europe. And when we were in Atlanta, there was a representative uh, from one of the uh, global multilateral multilateral organisations that made the point that a number of countries are looking to use GDPR as their own template. Pick and choose perhaps the bits that most apply to their country. Uh, as you say, a lot of them are probably under-resourced in their ability to, to properly assess that. Um, but it is perhaps the default template just from the fact that it's there. Uh, and, and there is the risk that it on one hand becomes a constraining standard, but also perhaps the picking and choosing in different ways actually adds to further uh, inconsistencies. That's one of the things that I think both the US government should do, and frankly, multilateral institutions. You know, GDPR is not the only template. And sort of, you know, libertarian deregulation certainly is not a template in this space anymore, if it ever was. But there are other templates, and I think it's important for countries to be able to pick and choose from three or four different models that could move them down that path, but perhaps not with the, the harm to innovation that some might. And perhaps with the theme of, of the APEC events that I started with, uh, the sense of, of where APEC is sought, I think, to, to promote interoperability between different countries' systems, recognising that there are different privacy standards, different privacy expectations, but we want those different standards to fundamentally be interoperable at least to overcome some of the, the localization problems. Yep, absolutely. Mm. And we're never going to have, and never, ever, ever, will we have a global standard on privacy or hate speech or any of these other issues. Uh, countries are just too diverse and they have different values and, and different traditions and different laws, and those are all legitimate. So the idea of somehow some utopian world where we all have GDPR, or we all have rules about hate speech, that's not going to happen. Mm. But we should be able to have those a world where we're able to interoperate and move data around with respecting each country's own particular views and mm. approaches. It's an important aspiration that we all need to, to continue working towards. Yep. Looking ahead on FRT, we'll have some further great guests joining us in the coming weeks. Doug Elliott of Oliver Wyman will be joining my colleague Pablo Urbiola to discuss the Consumer Data Rights Report and building on the discussion that we had at the IAF New Data Ecosystem Roundtable uh, discussed in, in episode 30. I'll be visiting Mark Zilmer, formerly OSFI's member of the Bail Committee in Ottawa, where we'll discuss Canada's adoption of open banking and deposit stability. And on one of the long-awaited episodes that I've been promising for a while, Sarah Rung of Credit Suisse joins my colleague Adrian Delacasa to discuss the IAF report on the adoption of machine learning in anti-money laundering. Please tune in again for those upcoming episodes via the IAF website on SoundCloud and now on Apple Podcasts. I'm Brad Carr, and thanks for joining us on FRT.